Coming up next, the booketing reads The Old Man and the Sea. Welcome to the booking. My name is Nathan Albers, and I'm your humble and obedient host. I am joined, as always, by Brandon Chasteen. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Brandon. You interrupted me in the middle of saying what you are. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tell you the people are what I am. A man, a human being, yeah. fine fellow. Uh huh. I think some people have, in the past, maybe called me Lardo. Some people have called you Lardo. Maybe. Some people's moms have felt bad and advised them against calling you lardo i'm gonna rub it in just like a thick batch of lard just rubbing it in yep, just you like and... you love rub it into your skin <laughs> yeah on the beach that's right like a whale that's washed up how about jab of the hut i'll just call you jab of the hut <laughs> all right <laughs> folks the joke is me and brandon are essentially within the same realm of size ishness i wouldn't say either one of us is like hideous so no. it's just we're, we're just, just having fun. A we're, fun. we're having fun we're having fun Neither of us are really offended. But my mom was on your behalf, yeah. so yeah. maybe I'll stop calling you Lardo. I don't know. Yeah. Now, also with us, Brandon, guess who? Who? It's Pastor Jake Menzel. Hey, sup? How are you doing today? I'm all right. Now, one thing, Jake, that we should probably tell people is, I don't know if people realize, I don't know, first of all, if people realize that the booking actually takes place in the Sound of Sanity universe. Like, It does, yeah. We're in Sanityville when we record this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah no, this all, all takes place at Brandon Chestine's house in Sanityville. Right, in the Ville. lives in the Ville. Right. He has a house, he's got a wife, they're very much in love. That would, I'd say, be, be Brandon's primary characteristic in, yes. the, <laughs> in the Ville. Very much. The other thing, though, that people don't know is that uh, Brandon's back porch actually on the lake the beautiful Lake Sanity, and uh, we're just having a nice day today on Brandon's back porch, right, Jake? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I am. Whoa! Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh, no! Brandon, get him! Get him! Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He just got... Oh, no. Throw him a life preserver or something, Brandon. Oh, only I could throw. No, your arms are too fat, though. <laughs> you can't get can't, them up. can't even move them. Stupid gravity. Yeah. Well, Jake got eaten by the octopus. In case people people might not have been able to understand what was happening there, but Jake just got eaten by Seven Arms, the legendary octopus of Lake Sanity. I'm sure he'll be fine. He did get shot. No, you got shot. Did you get shot? No, he got shot. And he came back. And he came back. What do you really think about that Jake? I guess we can talk about him since he's not here. Yeah. I mean, I think that he's tall. Yeah. Yeah. An arsonist, I think we've established on it. He, he can grow a beard. <laughs> he can grow a beard and he likes to burn things, or he did before this. He does. Really that's demise. right. That's right. I bet that's actually probably what he's doing. There's some smoke on the horizon there. Yeah. That's probably somebody's barn burning. This is a really elaborate ruse if Jake made himself get eaten by an octopus so that he could go burn <laughs> someone's barn. Props to him for that. Yeah, props. I mean, he could have just like called props. in sick or something like that. He could have. But no, instead he got himself eaten by that octopus. We'll just pretend like all the red in the water is not 
related. <laughs> no. Could be any number of things. Tomato juice that he carries around at all times in yep. his pocket. The ketchup bottle that he was drinking yeah. from. He likes tomato products, so he yeah. always has at least a ketchup bottle in one pocket, can of V8 in the other. Mm-hmm. He actually wears a holster, ketchup in one thing and uh, yeah. uh, V8 in the other. He has and, like a, uh, a, a paintball gun, but he fills them with little Roma tomatoes. And he eats tomatoes. He usually just has an, a tomato in one hand like an apple. Yeah. And he's just chowing down on that thing. That's his thing. That's his thing. <laughs> Jake and his tomatoes. <laughs> I don't know why it's taking us this long to mention it. Yeah, no, it's just like the classic thing. Jake is never without his tomatoes. Yeah. Uh, his favorite movie, Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah. The Attack of the Angry Tomatoes. Yeah, Attack of the... Killer Tomatoes. Killer Tomatoes is his second favorite movie. Yeah. And other movies in that series. Uh, Except he says tomato. Well, let's call the whole thing off. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon. Well, Nathan. Another episode of The Bookening. Yeah. And today we are talking about our fine friend Hemingway. We did a couple episodes, maybe three, I don't know, two or three episodes on For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was, uh, shall we say, a pro- problematic novel. Problematic, yes. If we want to use that word, sure. Um, it was problematic. It was problematic. Uh, but it has some absolutely beautifully written set pieces. Yeah, it's a gorgeously written book. Yeah, yeah. it's just oh, maybe stylistically. And some incredibly moving parts. This uh, The scene where, um, what's his name? The main general ca- character. Oh, Pablo? Yeah. Pilar's. Pilar's lover, husband, whatever he is. Yeah, what Pop- I think it's Pablo. Something like that, um, where he recounts having to shoot those townspeople. I think that's actually Pilar that tells that story. It could be crazy. That is Pilar telling it, and she's telling it about him. Yeah. That's right. It's That's like right. when he was at his most potent and manly yeah. and when he overtook the town and they dragged all the hoity-toity, you know, the one percenters out. And Except the way Hemingway tells it, you know, you're, you still feel for those one percenters and the tension of the moment and how awful it is to go through that sort of revolution. Yeah, it's absolutely a, a gorgeous piece of the writing. And the book has two or three of those. Uh, there's the death of a dude. I don't remember all the details right now, but there's just the death yeah. of us, the last uh, stand of... A group of soldiers. Santiago or something. But yeah. They're on top of that hill together. Yeah. That's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Um, Only but, matched by certain scenes of a book we're going to read this year as far as work. Yeah. Yeah. There, that book has some amazing scenes. Also got some good stuff about peace is my yeah, understanding. Yeah. That's a book for men and women. Chicks and the dudes <laughs> are going to love that book. It's got some war and it's got some peace. Yep. It's got some love. It's got some death. Mm-hmm. Fathers, sons, mothers, daughters, all that kind of good stuff. All of it great i'm looking forward to that so am i although what's that sound it's the sound of the pistols going off brandon chastine is of course the contextual texan he likes to fire off his gun throw his hat in the air yeah and with a hail and hearty yeehaw he provides some much needed context for the work in question we are of course discussing the old man and the sea today yeah. the final work is it i believe it's the final work isn't yeah. it at least yeah. his final famous work yeah but that was pretty close to when he took the old shotgun and um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, Nathan. What do you want to talk about? Uh, it, well, let's, it's your segment, Brandon, let's take it away. Jake has been eaten by an octopus and, uh. Should have thought to use these pistols to try and save Jake. Yeah, you, we really could have probably done more, but, you know. I mean, what are you going to do? Something tells me his spirit lives on. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be back. I'm technically a ghost, right? Yeah, that's right. You are a ghost. There's a lot of death on the bookening. Well, no one's ever really. Guys, if we know one thing from the Rise of the Skywalker trailer, it's that no one's ever really gone. Brandon. That's right. We're all here in some way. Jake will always be a part of us. His heart will go on. His heart will go on. Literally, maybe because I 
heard that Seven Arms doesn't really like to eat hearts. They just kind of spits it back out on shore. Yep. He's a little like the Sarlacc, which yeah. apparently people digest in for hundreds of thousands of years or something like that. Yep. With their consciousness staying alive. I read this just recently in some kind of nerdy something or other. You stay alive for thousands of years? Yeah. If you're eaten by the Sarlacc, like his digestive juices keep your consciousness alive and it kind of merges with his or something like that. But it also slowly digests you over decades. That's awful. Yeah, it's not a good fate to be eaten by that Sarlacc. So that was Boba Fett's fate. Yeah, except for I think, I don't know whether this is canon or not. In the old, like before they changed everything, he crawled out or, you know. He escaped. But he he had a jetpack, so he actually, yeah. That's the sound that a jetpack makes. (laughs) All right, Brandon, your job is, is first of all, of course, to do jetpack noises, but secondly, to provide context for this work, The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. So take it away. Let's do this, Nathan. Yeah. So, Hemingway was born in 1899. 1899. And he died in 1961, which puts him squarely in the modernist movement. And we've talked a lot about the modernist movement, and I'm sure we'll talk about it some today because it's one of my favorite hobby horses. We've said the sentence, we've talked a lot about the modernist movement many, many times on this podcast. Yeah. We're, we're beyond talking about it. We're in, we're, the we're in the middle of it. Yeah. We've talked about it, and we continue to talk about it because we... It's like one of our recurring dreams, like uh, Nietzsche. Right, exactly. So we're stuck in the modernist dream, the modernist cycle. It's like being stuck in the modernist machine, Mm -hmm. which is what Ezra Pound would, and guys like that would talk about. Mm -hmm. The cycle of capitalism doesn't stop. It just churns you and churns you and churns you and then spits you out. Oh, there's one thing that I, I, I really think the booking is about. It's the cycle of capitalism. Yep, that's right. We are a capitalist monster. Yeah. How do people think we get all this money? We're just rolling it. Yeah. We're actually sitting on chairs just made out of $100 bills right yeah. now when we do this podcast. Yep. Microphones are made out of pennies. Our microphones are made out of pennies. I don't <laughs> know how they work. So <laughs> <laughs> all this happens in our head. Brandon actually had his hand chopped off and yeah. made replaced with a solid gold hand. Yep, that's right. On purpose. Yeah, on purpose. No, I'm, I'm not saying like it was a mistake. Yeah. I you... cut off a body part every year and replace it with gold. That's mm-hmm. my new, a new initiative. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you you had a dream and you made it come true. So, all right, con- 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 Jake. <laughs> this is what happens when you leave, Jake. Uh, context, my friend. Yes, 1899 through 1961. So he was born in Oak Park, Illinois, and suburb of Chicago, not too actually far from here. You can drive, and we could go see Hemingway's home. In fact, we thought about it when we went up to do our live show. Remember? That's right. We that was were one kind of the of options. Vaguely in the area, and we did not decide to do it. No, so we decided to try and go. To the poetry library. Yep. And they were closed. Yes. Um, he was born to uh, Clarence and Grace Hemingway. Clarence was a doctor and his mother was a musician. So he was born to some class then, eh? Yeah, he was born in some class. He had a fairly well-off childhood. Went to some decent high schools and elementary schools. He got a good education and he had a good um, grounding and... The arts and music through his mother, even though he would despise music later on in his life. Well, he would despise his mother later on in his life, really. Music would become very fundamental and to his existence. And in fact, people say that there are like contrapuntal elements to his books, which he probably got from having had a mother who was a musician. Did you say contrapuntal? Contrapuntal. What, is it, what does a contrapuntal be? Contrapuntal right? is a musical term. It mm-hmm. has to do with the balance of lines and stuff. Let me make sure I'm telling you this right. Two or more independent melodic lines, yeah. 
So it's like when you have these melodic lines that flow in and out of one another. And right, I know what counterpoint is in music, and I think most of our listeners, even if they don't know, it's fairly self-apparent, but what does that mean in, what does that say about his writing style? Some critic back when he was writing his book said that he had contrapuntal elements to his book, his writing style. So it's like two lines of... I guess like the fact that he can have him weave these different narratives together and different voices together, I think, hmm. would be the contrapuntal element in literature. Maybe maybe this is something. Let's look it up. Yeah. One, two. Contrapuntal literature. We're going on a contrapuntal adventure. Contrapuntal literature definition. Yes, sir. This has to do with Said. So apparently this is very specific. Here we go. By looking at a novel contrapuntally, we take into account intertwined histories and perspectives. That's basically what I said, right? Intertwined histories and perspectives. And, and perspectives, yeah. So if a novel is written from multiple points of view, it I is think considered so. contrapuntal? Specifically, contrapuntal analysis developed by Edward W. Said is used in interpreting colonial texts, considering the perspectives of both the colonizer and the colonized. Ah, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of a postmodern theory kind of a thing. This approach is not only helpful, but also necessary in making important connections in a novel. If one does not read with the right background, one may miss the weight behind the presence of Antigua in Mansfield Park, Australia in Great Expectations, or India in Vanity Fair. Interpreting contrapuntally is interpreting different perspectives simultaneously and seeing how the text interacts with itself as well as with historical or biographical context. Sounds like it's just a way of bringing a bunch of academic theory to bear on. Yeah, it's Said. So Edward Said is a famous post-colonial theorist. Mm. And apparently this is what they mean by contrapuntal. So for example, Jane Eyre has the wife that was, you know, Mr. Rochester's wife that was in the West Indies and all that. Is that a contrapuntal narrative or could we simply read it contrapuntally if we're looking at things from... I think here you do a contrapuntal reading of something. And so you would try to interpret its various contrapuntal layers, but it wouldn't necessarily have been purposeful by the author. So if we looked at... So we could go to Jane Eyre, we could talk about how she has this woman who is other, who is literally post-colonial on an, on like a colony of Britain and is portrayed as as other, as monstrous and blah, 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 blah. We could... Yeah. And so I'm guessing with Hemingway, the way, the easiest way for us with the pr- current novel would be, you would read Old Man and Sea contrapuntally by thinking about the crossover between the old man and the... Where is he from? Cuba. Right. And these jo- white baseball figures. Joe DiMaggio yeah. and... That's the contrapuntal reading. Right. As you think about all the layers of intertwining and interweaving histories. Well, we will be reading a novel that I think is intentionally dealing with those kinds of themes in Midnight's Children yes. later this year. And that, yeah, will... that is a very intentional novel when it comes to those sorts of things. Right. And it's not that those questions are unimportant when the novel is dealing with those. It It is a question as to whether or not it a good way to approach literature when that's all you're ever looking for. Well, it's silly. A great example that you just mentioned is Mansfield Park, which does have this reference to Sir Thomas having slaves or something like that. But that's simply and completely beside the point of what Jane Austen was trying to talk about in that novel and to try to pretend like Jane Austen had much of anything to say about the slave trade, about colonialism, about any of that stuff is just like, I think Jane Austen probably would laugh in your face if you tried to dig those <laughs> themes out of Mansfield Park. Yeah, or that it adds anything to the novel to try and read it through that lens. Right. And that's, so, that's what contrapuntal readings would do. So it would take something like that and say, well, what does it change if we try to read this post-colonially? And you're like, well, it does. Changes it into something else that it was never intended to be. It gives you something to say that we already knew, which is 
the British colonialists really treated the colonial people poorly and that a lot of people in Britain weren't aware, either weren't aware or it wasn't enough. It wasn't important enough to them that, but I mean, does it really, I don't know. So you're supposed to then either try to say Jane Austen knew these things right, or that she was unaware of these things. And what does that tell us about their society? You know, well, it tells us exactly what we already know, that all these evils can happen and nobody in the empire knows about it or cares. Yeah. I, I think a lot of postmodern theory is denying the depravity of man yeah. and then finding ways to be shocked by evil yeah. that happens historically when if you just simply go in with the assumption that, yeah, a lot of evil happened historically. I mean, this is what Heart of Darkness was about. Precisely. But it doesn't have to then be what Mansfield Park is about. Right. Just because it has this one moment. All it reveals to you is, yes, this was going on and people like Jane Austen either weren't aware of it or they were calloused to it. Who's surprised by that? And it well, doesn't and make I, Jane any... I mean, there are things that we're calloused to in our society. All Every society has that sort of thing that they're calloused to. Yeah. We have abortion. Right. We have same-sex marriage, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So... To pretend like these things are... Well, it's to simply miss what's good about, for example, again, Mansfield Park, because it has so much to say about love, about relationships, about fatherhood, and to go into it with this pre preconceived notion of what you're going to look for. It's like, if you're going to look for that, you'll find it. But man, you're going to miss a lot of gems that yep. you could get out of this novel. Otherwise, if you were actually looking, if you actually asked the question, well, gee, I wonder what Jane Austen wanted to say through this. Yeah. Not what I can make it say, doing some calisthenics. So there we go. Anyway, yeah. Contrapuntal. That, that was an unexpected digression. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing with this critic who was looking at Hemingway, this was, I think, before... Said and these guys would have been significant enough to have entered into the lexicon of literary criticism. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure all he means is that Hemingway was a master at weaving together various voices. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, Hemingway so was not a master of being, I mean, his novels are pretty white privilege a lot of times, yeah. let's face it. But if you think about, well, Hills Like White Elephants, mm -hmm. you have both perspectives pretty you have the narrator's perspective, you have the guy's perspective, and you have the girl's perspective. All kind of weave masterfully in where it's really difficult to unstitch them. Well, and oftentimes he'll bring in a additional ironic perspective in, yeah. in Old Man in the Sea. It's those tourists that see the discarded carcass yeah. and make some offhand comment about it at the very end. And so we sort of get a God's eye view of, oh, life's going on from another perspective. I, I don't remember whether Hills with White Elephants has that, but it may, you know, from with the... It does at the end because the boy, the the young man goes into the bar. Right. Remember? And he sees all the others and he just feels like it gives you this distance he has now from the girl where yeah. you can go back and say, yeah, let's just. This this little couple yeah. was having a. It's a fantastic story if people haven't read it. Oh, Hills with White Elephants. Maybe one of the top five short stories ever written yeah. in my book. Certainly one of my favorites. I... You want to know just how masterfully the form can be done. Yeah. And it's actually in. It's not widely loved today because it is a fairly pro-life story mm -hmm. worth checking out. A lot of people think it's, a lot of feminists hate the story. A lot of feminists hate Hemingway. Yeah. And I guess we can talk about why now. Yeah. yeah so yeah. We, we've, we've made it to the point where we've introduced his parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Because <laughs> um, his mom was a musician, but I'm not, so a lot of critics stretch, they have to stretch themselves because they have to try and find something interesting to say. Mm-hmm. A lot of critics think they have to try and find something interesting to say. Let's put it that way. Well, that, by the way, is why I know sometimes I just like to say here in justification of something we do on the booking sometimes, sometimes we'll do shorter episodes or less episodes and people can be kind of frustrated. Like we read this novel and we expected you guys to have so much content about it. But 
I'm always not wanting to push us where, uh, for a recent example, very recent example, most recent example is Steinbeck. What did we read? Of Mice and Men. Of Mice and Men. Like, that novel's been chewed up and spit out by, by culture, by academia, by so many people at this point. We just didn't have a lot to say about it. And I didn't want to try and stretch and conform it into some new booking scheme of how to think about it. Let's just look at it for what it is, realize there's not a ton of meat left on that bone, and move on. Anyway, sorry. We will get away from Hemingway's parents starting now. The contrapuntal stuff. Yes. And so we were saying the critics stretch themselves. And so he had this musician mother, and so they want to say that there has to be counterpoint in his books, whether or not that's counterpoint or just like good writing. A lot of good authors can mix perspectives, and I don't know if that's really a musical thing. If he had become a poet, you could really make the argument. But even his prose is not. It's poetic to an extent, but it's not poetic. It's not like... It's beautiful prose. Go ahead. Well, Thomas Wolfe, uh, Le Cormor d'Angel, one of those yeah. kinds of guys where you can tell that everything was rhythm. Yeah. You know, these are the teeth that devour the earth. But, uh, but, yeah. but uh, Hemingway is not writing... He is not that way at all. ...with uh, ear towards... Fitzgerald, who he admired and would have a long kind of love-hate relationship with, and we'll kind of get to that later, it does have more of that... Con- <laughs> I think he, you could make an argument, has count- contrapuntal yeah. elements. Like he might add an extra adjective in order to get the right rhythm yeah. to the sentence. Hemingway is never going to add an adjective that isn't doing a ton of work. <laughs> I think that you thing. just have those various kinds of writers. If sure. I were to ever become a writer, I would be more along the lines of Fitzgerald because mm-hmm. I paint. I just can't write without worrying about language and mm-hmm. the sound of it. And that probably prevent me from ever writing a novel. <laughs> right. Maybe some poems. We'll see. And I tend to admire the Hemingway school and try and be. I think that there's always a place for flourishes in writing, yeah. but I like things to be spare. Well, there you go, people. Yep. Look for the upcoming novel from Nathan and maybe the upcoming poems from Brandon. Yep. Clarence and Grace Hemingway. <laughs> this is what happens when Jake leaves. <laughs> Clarence and Jake Hemingway. Or, uh, uh, yeah. All right. Grace so Hemingway. they spent a lot of time in his childhood in a place called Windmere in Walloon Lake, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it was here that uh, Hemingway, through his father, was introduced to his love of the outdoors. They would hunt. They would fish. They would spend about, it was very similar to if anyone's ever read Once More to the Lake. Very, very similar to what the whites were able to experience. And this made him someone who just loved nature, being outdoors, and this would dominate his life. I mean, we don't, uh, he's, it's pretty famous, the story of Hemingway. He would eventually end up in Cuba, where he would actually go on these deep sea adventures. Um, he would, he would have a boat, I think it was called the Pilar, mm-hmm. that would end him, we'd eventually get him on an FBI watch list. Because he he used it to help Cuba monitor their waters for German submarines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's getting really... And this was who Hemingway was. This would get really close to the edge of being a traitor, you know, helping Cuba. And so, obviously, he got on an FBI watch list. He shouldn't have been surprised about that. But even earlier than that, he, he would move to... And so, we'll just do a quick kind of overview of his the flavor of his life. Right. Because... He learned from Walloon Lake, Michigan, was this love of the outdoors, but also this love of adventure. Or if he didn't learn it from there, at least it was something that would become essential to him. It would be this nostalgic point that he would keep going back to. And so he sought it when he moved with his young wife, the first wife that he would divorce, who would eventually leave him with their child. Uh, He would go with her to France, where he would become a part of the uh, lost generation. I think he came up with the term lost generation. Did he? And the sun also rises. He went to France. He became part of the lost generation in the 20s. He would have been part of Gertrude Stein's uh, nightly evening parties and her, the group that would surround her that would become the central element to the modernist movement. So T.S. Eliot would have been there for a while. 
James Joyce would have been there. He would have met James Joyce. Ezra Pound would have been there. Found out something interesting today. Apparently, um, Ezra Pound was, he wasn't a great poet himself, but he was amazing at bringing these people together and kind of being the electricity that gave them the charge to go forward. Mm-hmm. He was the uh, guy with the patch. Guy with the patch. Nick Fury. Yeah, he was Nick Fury. He was Nick Fury, basically. Mm-hmm. And he brought them all together. He didn't have any superpowers himself. Yeah, but but he he could get everybody together and through like vorticism and uh, his magazine, get get everything going, even though he was a really bad poet. And I don't recommend anybody ever reading any Ezra Pound, except maybe his little haiku that he had. Oh, but the fun intersection, guess who he was also responsible for? Somebody completely different from any of the modernists we would think of. Uh, Flannery O'Connor. No, he pretty much discovered Robert Frost. Interesting. Of all people. Isn't that weird? That is weird. Yeah. How did this warm populist. Robert Frost ended up in Paris for a while and ran into... Yeah, so he would have met uh, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce. This would have been in 1922, and 1922 is the big year. This is when Ulysses came out. This is when The Wasteland came out. This is when Mrs. Dalloway came out. All these big uh, pieces of modernist literature and modernism with Gertrude Stein and her influence was turning away from sort of the classical realist approach to becoming more what we would think of as postmodern, experimental with form but really dealing with truth and reality. Mm-hmm. And so you see this especially with James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. James Joyce is very experimental. Ulysses is extremely hard to read. And Mrs. Dalloway is very stream of consciousness. And so they both deal with the stream of consciousness, experimental forms of narrative, all this, um, to really deal with the fact that post-World War I, traditional forms of art could no longer express truth for us anymore. And we had to move away from that. And that's, that's, and that's the narrative we've talked about in the bookening a lot. What's interesting about Hemingway is he doesn't necessarily fit into that narrative because his prose is very clean. His prose is not really experimental. Right. And so the question is, where does his prose come from? All right. So that's a question we've established. Let's get back to the, to the Windermere stuff and talk about that real fast. He would go to France. After France, he would, uh, he would uh, travel all over Europe. He would end up in Pamplona. Or famously, he fell in love with bullfighting and would write an essay for the magazine. What what journal was he writing for when he was over there? Was it, um, I had it written down somewhere. Huh, doesn't matter. He was writing for a magazine. Um, oh, the Kansas City Star. So that was worth it, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get back to that too, because that's going to answer the question, why was he different as mm-hmm. well? So we have all these threads we've started. Yes. It's contrapuntal, Contrapun- Wow. Whoa, Brandon's a contrapuntal <laughs> bookending Brandon person. contrapuntal chest. Yeah, man. Such a beautiful mind. Yep, you are a beautiful mind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, was, what were we talking about? Oh, so we would go to Pamplona. Some pretty neat places, too, like Shakespeare and Sons, Sylvia Beach's bookstore. That's where he met Ezra Pound. He would eventually, that would eventually lead him to Cuba with his with Pilar and the marlin hunting that he or marlin fishing that he would actually go out and do you can see pictures of him with like a half-eaten marlin that was the inspiration for this story mm. it's pretty fun you go out and you can look up pictures of Hemingway and the fish that he caught and all the hunting that he would he did he's very similar to uh, Teddy Roosevelt in some ways uh, except he ended up a very different sort of person <laughs> and even when he was in America he would not go to any of the major cities he would he would go to New York some and when he had to go like talk to Scribner and Sons and make deals with them but his places he would end up would be like Wyoming. He would live in Wyoming. And then we live in Cuba, these places that were distant and remote. And so then finally, you know, he would end up in Cuba towards the end of his life. And then he would come back to the States when he started to get sick and sickly towards the end and move to Idaho. And that's where he would die. 
where he would shoot himself. But yeah, he just had a life that was full of adventure. He ended up actually being a reporter for the Spanish Civil War, and that's where he got the inspiration for uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, came out of that. He committed adultery many times. One of the last times was with another journalist that he was actually in the Spanish Civil War with, and she would be the one who inspired him to write that book, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Even before he had gone to France, in fact, he had um, fought, he had wanted to fight in World War I, but uh, his eyesight, I think, prevented him or some small health deficiency like that. And so he became an ambulance driver. And that he met a guy named John, uh, John Dos Passos there as well, who was famous for uh, being an ambulance driver and would write the U.S. Trilogy and stuff later. Have you ever read any Dos Passos? No, I don't think so. So, yeah. All right. So that's sort of the adventure side of his life. The writing side of his life developed... Can I ask you a question about yeah. the adventure side of his life? How much of that is the legend and how much of that is the truth? I mean, I know Hemingway wanted to be seen as an adventurer. Was he, was he actually a, a, manly, a man's man in real life? Or was he just somebody that, for PR purposes, wanted to... Because I've seen old periodicals. I remember seeing a... I don't know if I've talked about this on the booking before, but I remember seeing like a, and I don't know why I saw this. I certainly wasn't searching for it. I saw like an old girly mag, pre-Playboy, that had an article about Hemingway and all this really macho man's man stuff. It just seemed like as early as the 40s, 50s, that was his brand. That was what he wanted to be seen as. And so my question for you, Brandon Chastain, is how much of it was the wizard and how much of it was the man behind the curtain? Pretty sure we talked about this in the Fitzgerald episode. Mm-hmm. Remember, we had a thing where Fitzgerald met Hemingway. Yes, and Hemingway was actually softer spoken and quieter, yes. and more effeminate than Fitzgerald had thought he would be. We did talk about that. So that's what always sticks in my mind with Hemingway is I think that a lot of it was just his persona that he put on for the public, but in reality, he was a much softer and effeminate sort of man. I mean, he was an ambulance driver in World War One. He did go out fishing. I mean, he did. He did have these adventures. He can't, I don't think he can quite. Yeah, he, and he did go on a safari. You don't want to say like it was all lies or anything like that. Bullfighting, he was into it. No, you know. but no more than, it, it was, I don't think it was any more of an adventure than a lot of the elites at the time would have been able to have because he was in the end part of the upper crust. Right. He Like from, is West Egg? Is that where he would have? Mm-hmm. Whatever it would have been. I think East Egg maybe. He would have been East Egg. Right, he yeah. would have been an East Egger. Yeah. And so like, so he got privileges that others wouldn't have had. For one, from his parents and his inheritance, and then also just from the fact that he was an extraordinarily successful writer. Right. I mean, so then that's where we were headed was to talk about his writing career. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, by the 1930s, he was he was a big name, right? And so, 1920s, uh, well, even by early, earlier than that, the 1920s, he wrote Sun Also Rises. But it would be like for whom the bell tolls in the, ni- in the 40s that would make him huge. Right. And so he would be a, a widely respected writer, have quite a bit of money, enough money that he can move to Cuba, buy a fairly nice house, go in, on these adventures to, the, uh, to Africa on safaris, where he would eventually crash a plane or be in a plane crash that would injure him. And that would lead to the sort of injuries that would plague him the rest of his life. This was towards the near the end of his life. Certainly, if a man is, if we were to judge a man by his character, if we were to say that a man who's made out of stern stuff is a man who can say no to his lusts, then... And it's not Hemingway. That's not Hemingway. Because he turned to drink after he got injured and was plagued by these injuries for the rest of his life. He became a heavy drinker, committed adultery numerous times, was not a man who easily told himself no. Right. And even, I mean, so there's a sort, uh, there's a certain sort of 
reaction against being effeminate and soft that mm-hmm. then leads men to just be effeminate and soft in another way. And that's by just giving themselves over to only being machismo. Right. And that's a sort of softness too. It's a guy that instead of spending time with his wife and kids, loving them, disciplining them, whatever, he's out hunting. He all has day. to go out and say yeehaw while he hunts his animals. Yeah, he's out. He's, he's tinkering in the car with his garage while he's drinking his craft beer, growing a big beard. Right. And feeling very manly all the yeah. way, all the while his kids are being ignored and not disciplined, just yeah. to give a generic kind of example of that. Yeah. And now, I mean, obviously, a man who's unwilling to do those things is a soft man. Mm hmm. If he's afraid to do those things. And that's that's the point. But guys then turn and they say, well, that's all I'm going to do now. Right. And so even though Hemingway could look like a very tough man who went out and did this hunt and hunted and crashed in planes and had all these adventures that could lead him to these and was brave enough to go to the Spanish War because the guy before him, it may have been Dos Passos, was, got too burnt out and didn't want to do it anymore. So Hemingway, the man, went in and did it. But even then, I mean, he, he ended up killing himself. And he wasn't a great father and he definitely wasn't a good husband. And so there is a sort of softness to that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we completely come to terms with. Well, and there's a quality of softness in the way that he writes his women as well, particularly the female figure and for whom the bell tolls is so soft and pliable and sexually submissive so quickly without the hero having to (laughs) do any kind of work. That is the fantasy of a lazy effeminate man. Oh, women will, this woman will, I'm going to imagine a woman is going to fall instantly in love with me and bend over backwards to serve me in every way, including sexually. An actual manly man doesn't have to (laughs) come up with an imaginary woman like that. Yeah, because uh, real women are harder than that. Real women are harder, or if they're not, they're incredibly damaged and broken and it's not good. Yeah. And you shouldn't maybe be too excited about that. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, yes. that's what that's that's the life Hemingway led. I mean, you can go on, like I said, you can go to other sources and get more particulars if you want to. Mm-hmm. But I think the m- important thing for the novel we're about to read is this sense of adventure that he had that dominated his life, and so it would lead him to, I think, respect sort of Homeric figures, right? And so there's this weird sense in Hemingway's books that glory, in and of itself, is what is worth pursuing in life. And so if you read with For Whom the Bell Tolls, Robert Jordan in the end, what, there's a sense of honor, but there's also this sense of glory. And this, the glory of the hunt, the glory of the kill, the glory of, not in, not in For Whom the Bell Tolls, the glory of the hunt would be this novel. Right. Just the honor and glory of war mm-hmm. and the dignity of it. Yes. That he worships and gives a place that I think it's very similar to what the Greeks would do with uh, with Homer and what Homer would do with uh, Odysseus. Yeah. There's it's something sort of glory uh, honoring. Not so much in this book, but Hemingway at large, there is something there is something gross about his machismo. Yep. And I think a lot of liberals find that off putting about Hemingway. And I do too. I do too. I mean, a lot of times I'd be against, you know, when when, when SJWs go out after Austin and try to claim her as their own or something like that. But insofar as people find Hemingway to be hugely problematic. I also find Hemingway to be problematic for the same reasons. I just think... And it didn't mean that he couldn't have flashes of insight that are worth seeing. Oh, yeah. Like Hills with White Elephants really is worth reading. Mm -hmm. And there are parts of this novel that I think are really brilliant. But there is a sort of weird honoring of the hunt itself. Well, he said that courage is... One of his famous quotes, courage is grace under pressure. Yeah. A lot of his best books or his best short stories are almost suicidally that. The Killers is a famous story. It's about a guy who's waiting 
for a couple gangsters to come kill him. We're kind of supposed to admire the fact that this guy's just accepted his fate and the killers come and the killers kill him. He's not going to cry. He's not going to protest what's happening. He's just, he's going to be graceful. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's kind of almost like a Zack Snyder or I don't know what we would compare it to in modern pop culture, but it's just the idea that as long as you can handle these things with a certain amount of coolness, whatever happens is okay. The yep. point the point isn't to be moral. The point isn't to be good. The point isn't to be anything. The point is just to accept, you know, life's going to screw you over, but if you can accept it with a wry little smile, then... And that's the height of masculinity. That's the height of masculinity. There's something good in that. I mean, there's something true in that. But that's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth, yeah. And nothing but the truth. And nothing but the truth. Anyway, I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. No, it's good. So, yeah, that's what we get from Windmere, Lake, Walloon Lake, Michigan, right after the name of his parents. Hmm. <laughs> so, so now we can get, and pretty much the way this is going to work, I think, is through his childhood and flash forwards, we're going to get the whole picture. Right. So we get, the next thing is in high school, he began to write. He also played sports and stuff. He was into all the sports you would expect Hemingway to have been into, boxing, football, all those sorts of things. He began to write in high school. He was known by his teachers as being a good English student and ended up editing for one of the high school journals or the high school magazine, whatever they call that. I didn't go to high school. I went to a wonderful little classical school. But this would inspire him to want to write later. Mm -hmm. And so he would become a journalist after graduating high school for the Kansas City Star. And it would be there that he would learn the principles, use short sentences, use first paragraphs, use vigorous English, and be positive, not negative. Mm. And those were the principles that he would then carry forward to his writing. So use short sentences, maybe use first paragraphs. I'm not sure about that, but vigorous English. One good verb can replace one bad verb, and a million adverbs. Right. right. And then the be positive, not negative. I'm not sure about that one, but at least the be short sentence, the use short sentences and the vigorous English, this would dominate the rest of his writing career. And so why this is interesting is because while he would go to France and he wanted to be a major writer with the lost generation, a lot of his writing career and the impulse behind why he became the writer he did and the famous style that he adapted and adopted would come from journalism. And that's really interesting because journalism was part of the sort of capitalist machine and was produced by the monster that everybody in the lost generation was trying to run from. Right. So with T.S. Eliot, you know, he was all about the experimental fragments of poetry and the illusions and stuff with the wasteland. Uh, Virginia Woolf and James Joyce were all about uh, stream of consciousness and illusion as well. But uh, Fitzgerald's kind of about memory and loss and this very florid poetic language. But Hemingway was very clean and precise, and he brought this, and that's the way his prose works. If you read any of his stuff, it is pretty clean and lean prose. And that's a good way to describe, I think, what the old man in the sea is. In the 20s, he began to write and get things published. He wrote a lot of different pieces, I think, for the Toronto Star Daily News or something while he was in France. And at the same time, writing stories. It was around this time that you had the famous story of him losing a suitcase full of his manuscripts. Mm. It was actually his wife at the time was coming to meet him. And she misplaced the suitcase. And so these are lost. And I think it's it's like a famous hunt. It's like an Indiana Jones, a literal Indiana Jones hunt that happens even to today. People trying to find this lost suitcase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being the one who finds the lost suitcase of Ernest Hemingway's juvenilia? That'd be great. Yeah, that would make your career. Yeah. You would be, yeah. But nobody knows where it is. Right. As far as we know, it was thrown away and rotted somewhere. But Fun fact, speaking of Cuba... That's where all the scholars say that the Indiana Jones trove of 
rotting classical silent films are. Somewhere in Cuba? Yeah, I don't know why I thought I should insert that, but just no. since, since we're talking about Cuba. Well, it's uh, fun, lost art. Yeah, the, 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 the famous, all the, like, the lost artifacts of Hollywood are supposedly in a vault in Cuba, if we could just get at them. Well, this, it's always fascinating thinking about the art that we haven't been able to see, like the library that burned down after Caesar. Right, yeah. Or um, the Vatican that has all those, the Vatican literally has books that they have not, then they won't release because they're in that restricted area, mm-hmm. right? And so it's just, it's fascinating. Yeah. Anyways. These have been lost to history. We'll never probably find them, I bet. Nobody will ever find them. It's mm-hmm. been almost a century since this suitcase was lost. But it is interesting to think that there were like, I think, 80, 88 stories or so. Somewhere right now in a landfill, in a garage, in a, someone's attic. Yeah. There's a suitcase full of Hemingway's early stuff. Yeah. It would have been also during this time that he would have gone to Pamplona and he got the nickname Papa around mm-hmm. this time. Papa Hemingway? Papa Hemingway, mm-hmm. which would be... Uh, just because he was a large, tall, handsome man, he became known as Papa, even at this young age, because he was only like 24 when he started to get the nickname Papa. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, it would be around this time, 1926, that he would publish Sun Also Rises, and then his career would take off from there. He, right. would become, he would write short stories, become known for that as well, eventually write for whom the bell tolls, eventually get to the point where he earned the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954. And then, towards the end of his life, get the date exactly right here, so this would have actually, and this was, so part of, so I just said he got the Nobel Prize. Part of the citation for him getting the Nobel Prize was this book called The Old Man in the Sea, mm-hmm. written in 1951, 10 years before he died, one of his last important works. This was about his memories in Cuba, because he had been living in Cuba for a while, and actually based on people that he had met there, people that he admired, and his own experiences hunting marlin at the sea. And it's this... Uh, it's probably the height of Hemingway's art. It's where you can see all these things, his short prose, his ability to really build an image for you. Part of the modernist movement was introducing this sort of emphasis on the image. Mm-hmm. Just like It's like realism, but it's trying to give realism some sort of significance by just really focusing on the image. It's, I mean, I don't know how, how else to express it. Because realism tries to give a sense of reality. Right. But imagism like focuses on the thing itself. And so like with Hemingway, with... The old man, he seems to stand for something. Right. Sharks seem to stand for something, right? Even though they are real things, but they seem to have some sort of significance beyond those things as well. That's kind of what imagism brought to. So yeah, the, the famous example is the Red Wheelbarrow by William Carlos Williams. Right. Yeah, and so that's how that's where we get the old man in the sea. His life would be disappointing after that. Would eventually take his own life. He would be plagued by injuries from all his earlier life adventures and misery from all his earlier life misadventures and eventually drive him to depression in Idaho and he would kill himself. And the critical tide kind of turned on him, didn't it? Like The critical people... tide did start to turn on him. him uh, Old Man in the Sea was seen as his last great work, as it does on a lot of these guys. It's turned on Kipling, it turned on Steinbeck, turned on Hemingway. All right, Brandon, well, anything else? Anything we need to know about the Old Man in the Sea specifically? Or? No, I think that we're ready to get into it, Nathan. Hopefully, old Seven Arms will spit Jake back up. I've just have a feeling, you know, that Jake's dead and will never be in the podcast again. I could have sworn I heard from Chip or somebody once that old Seven Arms has an allergy to tomatoes, like a nightshade allergy. That's possible. That's possible. I don't, I haven't heard that specifically, but. I mean, I've heard a lot of monsters do. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hillary Clinton has an allergy, I think. 
All right, Brandon. Well, uh, let me, here's what we'll do. Uh, we got to do some donor shout outs here. So new idea. Yeah. I'm going to tell a little story with our donors and you provide the sound effects. Okay. Once upon a time, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds, went uh, for a walk. <laughs> Suddenly they were attacked by a rabid, knife-wielding, immortal monster that was also very beautiful and nice, named Chelsea. I'm going to stab you. I'm going to stab you. <laughs> Fortunately, Nathan, not me, arrived with his sword. Yay! Hero! And began to fight Chelsea E. They both fought, and they fought all the way through the house of a Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Hey, get out of here. What you doing? <laughs> Take your shoes off. <laughs> all the way into the valley, which was full of beautiful lilies of the valley. It's wind. <laughs> there was wind in this valley. <laughs> Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds, watched from afar and commented critically upon the proceedings. Oh, he can't fight very well. He needs to go back to fencing school, dear. Oh, cheerio. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that was so funny. The, The inscrutable Jenny Z, though, was like, Andrew and Esther, don't be so critical. And she shot them both. Ah, now you're dead. Be critical of that. <laughs> and, they, and they died, <laughs> unfortunately. And so they were taken to the coroner, named the Keith Master, who buried them both. We'll bury you in uh, six feet under the... I <laughs> dug a hole just for you. There you go. <laughs> you fit just like a key. <laughs> Attending the funeral were John and Jill, the lovebirds, and little baby Mac. Oh, man, we have better places to be. <laughs> Suddenly, they were hit by a truck driven by David's Mighty Men Trucking. Next time, don't have your funeral in the middle of a highway. They had had their funeral in the middle of the highway. And the reason was they got permission from Jay and Katie, who are cold and run love cheese and run ran the municipal highway authority thing. Typically, we do a better job than this. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just providing dialogue <laughs> now. <laughs> Another person that worked as the janitor at that place was my beloved mother, Beth. This is going to be a lot to clean up. <laughs> yes, that that's exactly what she sounds like. Suddenly, Adam, Emily, Fletcher, Anthony, and Jeremy, the darker lord of death, were crushed by a comet. Oh, no. And My dark lord of death skills cannot save us. No, they did not. And a small piece of that comet, comet broke off and went through the neck of... Yikes. <laughs> the incandescent Meredith. Oh, no. Look, and I'm now a comet superhero. <laughs> she died. Oh. No, she, didn't, she did not become a comet superhero. <laughs> but I'll tell you who did. Maya! Maya! Became a comet superhero and used her comet powers to fly around the Earth like Superman and Superman 1, yeah. taking everyone back in time and restoring everyone that we just killed. Oh, wow. Yay, Maya. Yay, Maya. And then was great Ro- rejoicing. Rock and Ryan and Judo Judy did not want the time stream to be reversed, so they shot all those people and killed them. Oh, man. They could have just used the Infinity Stones. Well, they she couldn't use the Infinity Stones because Danny the Dude had the Infinity Stones. Snap. <laughs> and he snapped, but the snap only made DJ Sammy G into dust. Oh, poor DJ. Sammy Dust now. <laughs> DJ Sammy Dust, that's right. Uh, Benny and Dan T were there, too. 
Hey. They had funny hats. Hey, guys, look, we got funny hats. And <laughs> so did Eric and Catherine. And Turd Ferguson. <laughs> yep. Eric and Catherine had very sad hats. Oh, we want better hats. And Professor X was actually the one that was writing this whole story. Hey, guys, this is all just make-believe. And, and Professor X was attacked by a raptor. <sighs> the end. Yep. All right, folks, you're welcome. The Book of the Day was written and produced by, well, it's produced by Nathan, but it was really written by Brandon Chastine, who did that wonderful context you heard. We'll be back with Old Man in the Sea Part 2 next week, right, Brandon? That's right. That's right, Nathan. And we will, yeah, how, what should people do if they want to support us? Go to patreon.com backslash forward slash forward slash forward right. slash the bookening and give us some money. Yep. Ten dollars need donor shout yeah. out. Three, we need 30 listeners to give $3 a month. We'll be at seven fifty. Yeah, and then we'll do Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Or not one of the two. I promise we, Nathan and I, we will do a Patreon feed where we put on elf ears and we read poetry in elven language if we get you guys to give us this money before the end of July. Yeah, definitely. And if you remind us to do it, because we won't yeah, remember. Yeah, we won't remember this. But you're welcome to remind us. Yeah. If you want to see us dress like elves and read elven poetry <laughs> and hate ourselves, <laughs> do it. Do it. Actually, we should volunteer Jake to do this. Yes. That's a Jake will idea. do this. If you want to see Jake by himself in elf ears reading elvish poetry. <laughs> Make it happen. That's, that's all I have to do. 750 by July. By July. There we go. We can do this, people. We can do this. Jake wants you to. Also, rate and review. Goodbye. Bye.